Good morning, church family. My name is Will, and it's my privilege to read the Bible to us this morning. I'll be doing it, as you can see, from the comfort of my own home. I look forward to when we can meet again in person, though. I'm going to be reading from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My name is Adam. I'm the lead pastor here and it's so great to have you join us I hope you were able to join us for our Easter services last weekend. We had a great time worshipping together online. We had people join us from all over the country, even from other parts of the globe. We had people from South Africa, from the UK, from Germany, and from the United States. I know many of you invited friends, family, and neighbours as well, many of whom joined in and participated in church for the first time or for the first time in a long time. So thank you for joining us last weekend for Easter. If you're new with us today, if this is your first or your second time, we're so glad that you're with us and we hope and we pray that you'll find a home in our church family. Last weekend for Easter, we spent our time exploring Romans chapter 8. And I can't think of a, a better place in the Bible to explore, to study, to meditate upon than Romans 8. It is one of the greatest chapters ever written. It is the masterpiece within the masterpiece because it tells us so vividly, so clearly about some of the most precious truths of the Christian faith. On Good Friday, we looked at verses 1 to 4 and we saw that through the death of Jesus on the cross, we are set free from the condemnation of our sin. We are free forever. On Easter Sunday, we looked at verses 9 to 11 we saw that through the resurrection of Jesus, the grave does not have the final say. We will live forever. Today, as we come to look at verses 31 to 39, we will see that because the risen Christ is with us and for us, we have nothing to fear. We are safe forever. Now, this is a, a timely issue, isn't it? I mean, many of us at the moment don't even feel safe enough to leave our own homes. But what we'll see today in this passage is where our true safety is found. 
This passage will fill us with assurance. In fact, if we will truly take uh, these truths to heart, if we will believe these verses, they have the power to transform our lives, to change us from the inside out, because they address one of the central questions of the Christian faith. This is a question that drives a lot of our doubts and our anxieties and our fears. This is a question that can keep us awake at night. This is a question that all Christians wrestle with at some point. And the question is this, can anyone or anything separate me from God's love? Or as someone else has put it, if I hand my mess over to Christ, will He ever turn away from me? I know He loves me right now, but what about in the future? Will there ever be a moment where God walks away? This is a very real question for us, and Romans 8 gives us a very reassuring answer. It tells us that God loves us today, and God will love us tomorrow. It tells us, as Ray Ortland says, there is not one particle of our existence excluded from the rescuing love of God. Everything we hate about our lives, everything grievous to God, He plunges under the cleansing blood of Jesus and the renewing power of the Holy Spirit, and He will never quit. He will never say, I'm sorry, but that moment in your life is so spectacularly sinful, not even I can save you. It has not happened, it is not happening, it will not happen. In Christ, you are safe, past, present, and future. In Christ, you have nothing to fear, you are safe forever. See, these verses are in the Bible because God wants us to feel loved. God wants us to know with a deep certainty that He is not opposed to us, but rather He is for us. I mean, Romans 8 tells us of the eternal and all-sufficient love of God for you. And the question is, well, what will your response be? God is showing you the depth of His heart. Will you open up your heart to Him? Will you get off the fence? Will you stop holding back? Will you believe the love of God for you? Will you allow the love of God to reorder and to reshape your life? What will your response be? This is actually how the Apostle Paul begins this passage. He asks the rhetorical question in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? What will our response be? This is how Paul begins the passage, and then he actually goes on to ask four further questions. And what I'd like us to do today is to explore these four questions. Because in these questions, we discover the truth, the life-changing truth, that in Christ, we are safe forever. So let's look at the first question in verse 31. And the question is this, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now notice the question is not, who is against us? Because the truth is, there are lots of things that are against us. Our deceptive hearts, our deep suffering, opposition from the world, condemnation from the devil, viruses, job loss, 
adultery, difficult kids. I mean, sometimes it feels as if the entire universe is against us. And when we try to face these things on our own, we discover that we are completely overwhelmed. It's kind of like trying to take on a, a tank with a Nerf gun. But this verse is in the Bible to tell us that we are not on our own. It, it tells us who we b- belong to. It tells us who is in our corner, who is on our team. It tells us who is for us. And it's none other than the sovereign God of the universe. Paul writes, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the Greek word for if, it's not a term of uncertainty, but actually of certainty. It's saying, if God is working on our behalf, and He is, then who could possibly succeed in opposing us? The implied answer is nobody and nothing. All of our enemies, all opposition scatters before God. It actually reminds me of that scene in The Lion King when Simba goes down to the elephant graveyard and he finds himself surrounded by hyenas. And he begins to get ready to defend himself. He's a a tiny little cub. But then all of a sudden, his father, Mufasa, the king, comes up behind him and roars. And the hyenas just scatter. Now we are kind of like Simba, surrounded by enemies. But then God comes up behind us, envelops us, roars, and all of our enemies scatter before him. Now, do you know this truth deep in your heart? You know, this verse, verse 31, it was actually John Calvin's life verse because it brought him so much comfort and so much confidence. What about you? Do you realize that if you are in Christ, God is for you? He's not against you. He does not merely tolerate you. He's not disinterested in you. He is for you. He is your ally and helper. He is your friend and saviour. He is your protector and father. God is for you. And if God is for you, then what this verse says is that no one can be against you. Because there is no one greater, there is no one more powerful than God. Now this doesn't mean that we won't face opposition. I mean, I cannot say this often enough or clearly enough. But to be a Christian does not magically shield you from suffering. To be a Christian does not inevitably protect you from pain. But it does mean that pain and suffering will not have the final say in your life. They will not ultimately overcome you because God is with you and God is for you. And even though the enemies we face are big, even though the pain we experience is deep, God is bigger and the love of God is deeper. It reminds me of what Corrie ten Boom would regularly say. Now, Corrie ten Boom, of course, survived the horrors of uh, the Ravensbrück concentration camp in World War II. And after the war, after she survived, she would go around teaching and she would regularly say this, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And that was a woman that had been in an incredibly deep pit. And this is what Romans 8, 31 is saying to us. God is for us. And if God is for us, then as Ray Altman says, God would have to be defeated for you to be defeated. And that will never happen, which means you are safe forever. 
This is the first question in the passage. The second is this, in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, to put the question simply, it's will God give us all things? Will God be for us in the future? Or will there come a point in time where, where God will say to us, well, I knew that you would be a pain, but I didn't know you that you would be this much of a pain. I'm done. I'm out. It's over. Well, according to verse 32, this is unthinkable. Because according to this verse, we can be certain that God will graciously give us all things in the future because of what God has given up for us in the past. Now, what has God given up for us in the past? The verse tells us, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Now, what does it mean that God gave up His Son? Well, it's referring to the events of Good Friday, the cross, where Christ died in our place, where our sin was poured out on Him, and God did not rescue Him. Jesus was not saved from the cross so that we could be saved. Jesus was condemned on the cross so that you and I would never be condemned. One theologian from many years ago, Octavius Winslow, he says this. He says, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. So here is Paul's question to you and to me. If God has already given us his most costly gift in Jesus, why would he hold back from us now? If God has already so totally committed himself to us in the past, why would he hold back from us in the future? I mean, what more does God need to do to prove to you his commitment to you, his love for you, his generosity towards you? Reminds me of a story I read this week about a Christian author named Brennan Manning and his best friend named Ray. Now, growing up, Brennan and Ray did everything together. As teenagers, they bought a car together, they double-dated together, they went to school together. They even enlisted in the army and fought on the front lines together. Now, one night, while they were sitting in a foxhole, Brennan was reminiscing about their younger days in Brooklyn. And Ray was sitting there listening to him eating a chocolate bar when suddenly a live grenade uh, landed in their foxhole. Brennan says in that moment, Ray smiled at him, dropped his chocolate bar and threw himself on top of the live grenade. It exploded, killing Ray, but Brennan's life was spared. Now, many years later, Brennan was visiting Ray's mother in Brooklyn. They were up late having tea one night and and Brennan asked his mum, he asked her, do you think Ray loved me? Now, Ray's mother got up off the couch, shook her finger in Brennan's face and shouted at him, what more could he have done for you? And Brennan says that in that moment, he experienced an epiphany. He imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus and wondering, does God really love me? And the answer coming back, what more could he have done for you? 
I mean, the cross shows us, proves to us that there is no limit to God's love for us, to God's commitment to us. God has given us his most costly gift in Jesus. How will he not also give us everything else? Why would he not also give us all things? Now, what are these all things that the the passage refers to? Well, it's not talking about comfort in this life. It's not talking about a healthy body and a huge home and happy days. No, it's talking about a sure and certain future with God. It's the promise of a sinless personality with an immortal body in a renewed universe together with a whole new human race, enjoying God, enjoying each other and everything worthy forever. I mean, that's your future because of the cross of Jesus. And it means that you have nothing to fear, that you are safe forever. The first question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God has given Jesus for us, will he not also give us all things? And the third question in verses 33 to 34 is this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Now again, if we were to ask the the simple version of this question, who shall bring a charge against us? Who shall accuse us? The, The truthful answer is many voices could be raised. I mean, our conscience accuses us. The devil accuses us. Even other people that we know could point the finger at us. And a lot of what they say would be true. I mean... Anyone who knows me well could deliver some charges against me. Flaws in my character. Things that I've done. Things I haven't done that I should have done. Careless things I've said and so on. And a lot of what they say would be true. But in God's courtroom, ultimately, none of these charges will stick. Why? Because God dealt with them on Good Friday. Because in Christ, I have been declared not guilty. And it's the same for anyone else who finds refuge in Jesus. God considers our case closed. He has decided in our favour, we are innocent. Not because God is delusional and doesn't really see the details of our lives. God sees all that we are. Not because God has kind of lowered His standards to let us in. No, but because payment was made on the cross. Because God's justice was satisfied through the death of Christ. You know, there's a great moment in the book, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, the classic allegorical tale by John Bunyan. It's a story about Christian and his journey towards the celestial city. Now, there's a point in the story where Christian is accused and confronted by Apollon, or the character that represents the devil. And he accuses Christian of unfaithfulness to God. He, He accuses him of failing God. He charges Christian with not deserving God's grace. Now, Christian responds by saying this, All this is true, and much more which you have left out. But the Prince, whom I serve and honour, is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides, these sins possessed me in your own country. I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, but now have obtained pardon from my Prince. In the courtroom of God, which is the highest court in the universe, we have been declared not guilty. And if the judge of everything 
has declared us not guilty, then who could possibly bring a charge against us? Who could possibly condemn us? And the answer is no one. Now, of course, the, the devil wants us to feel condemned. I mean, his life's work is to drag us down into despair over our sins. Even our own hearts accuse us, whispering to us that people like us have no right to enjoy God, that we deserve to be miserable, that we should punish ourselves, that it's hypocritical of us to, to enjoy God's love, to receive God's grace. Now, there's a half-truth in there. We, we do deserve to be miserable because we are guilty. But this is the amazing, incredible good news of the gospel, is that in Christ, God gives us what we don't deserve. That the cross overrules our guilt, it overrules our shame. And that in Christ, God has now declared us justified, forgiven, loved, adopted into His family. And no power in heaven or on earth can change that standing. It reminds me of the words of one of my favorite hymns. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And friends, this is true and it means we are safe forever. Number one, if God is for us, who can be against us? Number two, if God has given Jesus for us, will he not also give us all things? Number three, if God has justified us, who could condemn us? And then fourthly and finally, the, the fourth question in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Now let's be honest, there are lots of things that feel as if they separate us from the love of God. In fact, Paul lists some of those there in verse 35 and 36. He mentions trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger and sword. Now that's not a comprehensive list, we could add many more things. Cancer, heart attacks, adultery, family conflict, abuse, job loss, infertility, miscarriage, loneliness, betrayal, and on and on we could go. I mean, when we go through these things, it feels as if we are cut off from the love of God. It feels as if God has forgotten us, as if God has abandoned us. Have you ever felt that way? It can be so bad that we even feel like we're sheep being led to the slaughter. That's exactly the imagery that Paul uses in verse 36, where he, he writes, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now this is a quote from Psalm 44, because in this psalm, the people of God are suffering. And they're not suffering because they have rejected God. They're suffering because they have obeyed God. And that's just reality of life in this world. We will walk through deep, dark valleys. We will experience deep pain. And even if we love God and follow Jesus, sometimes especially because we love God and follow Jesus. Now, does this mean that God doesn't love us? Does this mean that God has abandoned us? 
Well, the answer of the Bible and the answer of verses 37 to 39 is a resounding no. Listen to some of these most beautiful words in the whole Bible. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, the hope of the Christian is not no suffering. The hope of the Christian is no separation. That God is with us. I mean, this was the hope of King David in Psalm 23. Do you remember what David wrote in this famous psalm? Because I never walk through dark valleys, I will not fear. That's not what he said. Verse 4, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. And this is our hope as well. You are with me. When I am abandoned by my spouse, you are with me. When I am betrayed by my friends, you are with me. When I am lonely, you are with me. When I am anxious or depressed, you are with me. When I am in the hospital, you are with me. When I am at the graveside, you are with me. When I am in the grave itself, you are with me. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And in fact, it actually gets even better and it goes even deeper because Paul says in verse 37 that we are more than conquerors that we will not only conquer or overcome our pain and our hurts and our sufferings, but actually in the hands of God, it will work for our good. This is what Paul said earlier in Romans 8 in verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. You know, Nikki Gumbel, the, the author of the Alpha Course, he, he tells the story of, of a young girl whose father was a famous pianist. This little girl was down in the lobby of a building and she was pounding away on the piano and making an awful noise. She was off key, she played the wrong notes, it was just awful. But then her father, who was listening from the balcony, he came down and he sat beside her and as she played the piano, he joined in. He filled in the gaps. He played notes that complemented hers. And by playing alongside his daughter, he was able to take this awful noise and make it into something beautiful. And God does something similar with our lives. He takes all of our sin and all of our suffering and all of our shame and He makes it into something beautiful. This doesn't mean that our sin and our suffering is good, but it means that God is able to bring the best out of the worst. And if you don't believe this is true, look at the cross. God took the very worst event in history, the violent crucifixion of His Son, and he turned it into the very best. The satisfaction of his justice. The display of his love. The salvation of sinners. Or as Ray Ortland says, he says, We are not victims. We are conquerors. By believing in the love of God 
come what may. Your sufferings are not robbing you. They are taking you deeper into the love of God. They always will. You will prevail. So getting back to our question from the start, what shall we say in response to these things? What do you say? What's your response? God has opened his heart to you. The question is, will you open your heart to him? Imagine what God could do through a people who lived as if these verses were true, who took God at his word. Let's find out together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Thank you that you have not even held back your only son for us. Help us to hold nothing back from you. Help us to trust you even in the deepest, darkest valley because you are with us. You will never let us go. You will never leave us and you will take the worst and make it into the best. And so, Lord, we just want to put all of our hope, all of our trust in you. We thank you for all that you've done and all that you are for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, below in the comments section of this video, you will find some discussion questions uh, based on this passage that we've looked at today. Can I encourage you to, to take advantage of these questions? Maybe you want to use them for personal reflection. Maybe you can uh, take a few moments uh, at some point in the next few days to discuss them with your family or those you're living with. But let's not just be hearers of God's Word. Let's be doers of it and let's seek to put it into action. Can I also encourage you to join us for our Zoom hangout after the service? We'd love to see your face and we'd love to connect with you. You'll find links in the comments below on our website or on social media. But right now, what I'd like to do is to just pray this blessing from Numbers 6 over you. What we're going to do in a moment is we're going to sing these words together, uh, but I would just like to read them and pray them over you right now. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. Amen.